Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Acts. We begin what I intend to be, Lord willing, an expository series through the book. And so we begin tonight in chapter 1, and I will read and we will consider verses 1 to 3 of Acts chapter 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Let's pray. Uh, Great God and our loving Heavenly Father, it's always exciting for us to start a new study, to open up a new book, which we've read before, at least most of us have, and studied in many ways. But Father, what a joy for us to, in these evening services, to carefully go through passage by passage of the book of Acts. And we would pray even now, Lord, that you would bless these studies with your Holy Spirit, that Christ, who lives and reigns on high, would do the work of his kingdom in this church and through this church, from this pulpit, even as he did so long ago through the apostles whom he sent. May he find glory in our study of the book of Acts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For over 1,600 years, Orthodox Christians have affirmed the statement of the Nicene Creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And one of our chief sources about that church is the book of Acts, which, which tells the story of the earliest days of the first believers after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts is not our only source. We have much that we find about the church in the epistles of the Apostles, which tell us much, but Acts would be our chief resource. Moreover, in Acts, we learn about the apostles of Jesus who spread his gospel throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. And for this reason, the book is titled in our Bibles, The Acts of the Apostles. It's interesting, the, the Greek, ancient Greek attributes simply say Acts, but it is generally put in our Bible, The Acts of the Apostles. And yet, the primary actor in the book of Acts is neither the church, nor is it the apostles, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ who was fulfilling his promise made in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And while Jesus stands at the center, the book of Acts certainly tells the story of the origins of the new covenant church. This book, which begins in an upstairs room in an isolated city of Jerusalem in a little province far away in a corner of the Roman Empire, that story concludes with the Apostle Paul proclaiming the gospel in the power center of the imperial capital of the city of Rome. And in between the beginning and the end of Acts, the gospel has spread throughout the empire. Churches have been founded in Judea, in what is today modern Turkey in Greece, in Italy, and many other places. Derek Thomas writes that Acts, therefore, asks a vital question. How did the church grow? How did it become so bold from from such a small and fearful beginning in Jerusalem? 
And it was to answer that question that Luke, the close associate of the Apostle Paul, wrote this remarkable record that we have in this book. He chronicles the first decades of the most explosive movement ever to appear on earth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, with its gospel of salvation through the death and resurrection of God's Son. And with that in mind, I think John Calvin gives a fitting recommendation to the book of Acts. He says, what an invaluable treasure God has left us in this account. Here we see how God established his church, and we learn that he maintains it by his power. We see in it the excellence of the gospel, whose success Satan's ever so great violence did not thwart. Well, the book of Acts, it turns out, is the second half of a two-part chronicle of the life and work of Jesus Christ. It's written for the benefit of a certain man named Theophilus. Luke begins in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. Now, we actually have no historical details of this man, Theophilus. There's no record of him outside of Luke's uh, writings. And yet, the things he says about him, both in the Gospel of Luke and here in Acts, are certainly suggestive. The name Theophilus can mean either lover of God or one who is loved by God. It's a Greek name identifying him as a Gentile. Moreover, in the opening lines of Luke's gospel, he identifies him not merely as Theophilus, but as most excellent Theophilus. And that suggests that the reader is a person of high social and perhaps political standing. Uh, In fact, if you look at verse 4 of Luke 1, it contains a line that does suggest that Theophilus was a convert. He wrote that you may have certainty concerning the things you have taught. And so he wants Theophilus to have the assurance of his salvation. He wants him to have the information upon which to ground and to build a strong faith. And with that in mind, R.C. Sproul points out, and he calls the book of Acts, an apologetics tract to recount the true claims of the Christian faith. John Stott writes, the events which have been accomplished, witnessed, transmitted, investigated, and written down here were and still are the ground of Christian faith and assurance. Now that introduction tells us that the book of Acts is centered on history. It's a, it could be considered an epistle to the extent that it's a written from one person to another. You have the introduction, but it is a book centered on history. And the beginning of Luke's gospel tells us of the author's labors to ascertain the facts concerning Christ, and he was well uh, qualified to do so. He says in Luke 1 verse 1 that he has undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And he goes on and says he made extensive inquiries of eyewitnesses and 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 participants. Now we know that as God's word, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also there's a variety of, of ways in which the human labor was done. It seems that in Luke's case, he spent a good deal of time investigating, actually interviewing eyewitnesses. I, I think I'm one of the people persuaded that the, the Christmas narrative, Luke 1 and 2, the birth account of the Lord Jesus Christ, shows a lot of literary markers that suggest that the tradition that he interviewed Mary herself, I think that that is a very plausible theory. 
the, the Hebraic form of those chapters and, and the, the material he gets, where else would he get it than from Mary himself? And so he, he went and he, he did investigative work. Now, in the book of Acts, Luke not only does that kind of thing, but he himself was an eyewitness and a participant in parts of the story. By the way, the book never, I, it never says that Luke wrote it. But it was very interesting as there's parts of the narrative when he speaks in the first person plural. Uh, most of the book, it's they, they did this, they did that. Then you see, particularly in the Paul's second missionary journal, journey as we number them, uh, he starts using we. And it's very clear that he himself is in the narrative. And based on these investigations, he intends in this book an orderly account. That's what he said in Luke 1 verse 3. An orderly account of the greatest events, the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, the greatest events ever to occur on earth. Now, James Montgomery Boyce goes to some pains to show that Luke was, in fact, very accurate as a historian, which is not that easy to do, and it was particularly not easy to do then. Today, if you were to do a research paper, uh, and when I was in school, you'd go to the library. You know, you, I, I love the library. In fact, I think the Internet takes away the experience of wandering through a musty library and finding the wrong book, but reading it for a while, and then the romance of finding the, the right book. But we have all these resources at our, at our fingertips. Now it's the Internet at our keyboard. You can, you can learn tons of things about everything by the Internet. Leak didn't have those things. But there are marks of, of, of accuracy, historical accuracy and care. Let me give two examples. In the book of Acts, he names rulers and leaders of cities. And uh, historians have found, even those who want to be skeptical, have had to admit that he gets the names right. To the extent that the names of so-and-so was in a certain place, and he was the ruler of that city, and of course he's traveling throughout the ancient world, uh, he gets it right. Not only that, he doesn't not only gets the names right, he gets the titles right. In Judea, it's a tetrarch. In another place, it's a governor. Different places have different terminology, and he gets it all right. That suggests to us the historical accuracy of the book. The other thing you will see in the book of Acts is that he gets the the local flavor of the different locations. He gets them right. He he does so because he was there. Uh, There's a big difference between Antioch and Jerusalem or between Ephesus and Rome. And when you read the book of Acts account of his description of those places, the culture, the kinds of things that were said, the way the people talk. Yes, even secular historians have had to come along and say, you know, he gets it, pretty, he gets it right. Indeed, he was. It is a hist- remarkably reliable historical document. Now, one question that will always come up is when the book was written. There are two, among evangelicals, there are two main theories. One theory is that Luke would have written this in the mid-70s. And one reason for that theory is it it shows, as a literary product, I'm persuaded that the book of Acts, as well as Luke, shows a literary dependence on the gospel of Mark. Most New Testament scholars today, most evangelical scholars, will will argue that the evidence suggests that uh, you will see, they're called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're similar. And it seems that Mark was the, the key document. And the argument is there's a late dating of Mark, although I dare I say a recently a, a fragment of a text has been found of Mark's that may push the date of the authorship of Mark back a considerable amount. But the argument is made that he depended on Mark. Mark was later in the 60s. Uh, and he would have written his book in the 70s. Not only that, he needed some time to do his investigations. 
The other view, which I think is actually more persuasive, is that the book of Acts was probably written while the Apostle Paul was still alive, written in Rome somewhere around the year 62 to 64. Let me give you three arguments in favor of the early date of Acts in the 60s. The first is he doesn't seem to have familiarity with Paul's letters. Now, no doubt he knows they were written, but he doesn't have copies of them. He doesn't actually quote from Paul's letters. It actually did not take that long in the first century for the Pauline letters to get circulated, to get copied, and to get around. And so the later you're going to go as a date, the more likely there's going to be that he has access to Paul's letter. He does not seem to have access to them. Moreover, he makes no mention of the Neronian persecution, which we would date around 65 AD, 65-66. More than that, he fails to say anything about Paul's death, and so it seems that the book of Acts uh, was written before Paul died. In fact, some scholars argue, and there's some case to be made, that he intended a third volume. But in in the providence of the Lord, he did not provide that. Well, as we consider Luke's description that the the gospel of Luke, together with the book of Acts, are written to be researched histories, we're reminded that the Christian faith is an historical religion. And in this, we radically differ from every other faith. Uh, uh, Buddhism, for instance, doesn't require anything about Buddha himself. Uh, It doesn't matter. We don't really know much about him. In the shadows of the misty history, there's theories about him. But it's all sayings. It's just ideas. It's a certain philosophy. It doesn't really matter who Buddha was. It doesn't matter what he did. That's not what it's about. In large measure, the same is true of Islam. They're going to speak more definitely about Muhammad, but the message itself is not dependent upon the person and work of Muhammad. So it is for every other religion except the Christian faith. Our hope of salvation, everything we believe, rests upon the fact that God intervened in history in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he lived and that he did certain things. It is historical faith. James Boyce writes, Christianity is indissolubly linked to the life and accomplishments of Christianity's founder. And that, by the way, because of what it is that we believe happened, what what that we know happened, that's recorded historically and is proved and validated in many ways, we call it good news. Because something changed. The world was bound in the darkness of sin under the wrath of God. Uh, They were uh, uh, strangers. Almost the entire world was strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. And Jesus came. And it is, something has happened. When people say, tell me what the Christian faith teaches, we should not merely give philosophy. It should not ever be merely ethics. Oh, there is a Christian philosophy. There is a Christian ethics. It is Christ himself. We believe that God in the person of his son was born of the Virgin Mary and he came into the world. Yes, God came into our world. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And he performed the work of our redemption, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending into heaven, and at that point, the book of Acts begins. Ours is an historical faith, and we relate events that happened on earth in history and have changed the world as well as our own lives and destinies. We freely admit that if they did not happen, our faith is vain and is false. But we are thoroughly persuaded that they did happen on the authority of God's inspired word. 
Well, while we note that Acts is the second of a two-volume work, we should observe the essential unity between the two volumes. And we'll we'll have occasion to comment on that. In fact, in verse 4, we'll have occasion to talk about this. Because uh, when when Luke writes his Gospels, there are themes that he embeds in it which are going to be explicitly brought to bear in the book of Acts through the life and ministry of the apostles. But it's essential that we realize that Luke does not view this second volume as an afterword to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Rather, look at verse 1. He says his first volume dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, the key word there is began. If everything Jesus did up through his death, resurrection, and ascension was what he began to do, Well, the clear implication is that this volume, the volume that follows, contains what Jesus continued to do. And that's what the book of Acts is. It's the record of what Jesus, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, what he continued to do. Let me quote John Stott. He says, Jesus' ministry on earth, exercised personally and publicly, was followed by Jesus' ministry from heaven, expressed through the Holy Spirit by his apostles. And so Stott suggests, uh, I I dare say, an awkward, uh, rather long title for the book, probably too long to be used, but I think a helpful one to hear. He suggests the title, The Continuing Words and Deeds of Jesus by His Spirit Through the Apostles. Well, that is in fact what we have in this second of Luke's two volumes. It is what Jesus continued to do, having conquered sin on the cross, having conquered death in his resurrection, having entered into his authority by his ascension into heaven. And it is not merely theoretical to view the book of Acts as the continuing works of Christ. Because as we read the book, as we go forward, we will see that he is, in fact, the prime mover of the events found in this book. Christ is the actor of the book of Acts. Let me just give some examples. Christ is the one who sends the Spirit, which is going to be so important to chapter 2. He's the one here in chapter 1 who calls and energizes and he trains his apostles. He's the one who directs them in their mission. The apostle Paul was converted by Christ, uh, personally by Christ, who came before him on the Damascus Road. And Paul Paul says in Galatians that Christ actually discipled him during his period of training. We we think of Acts 19 when Paul's in Corinth. I will enjoy that portion of the book. It it seems to me that Paul didn't like Corinth. I don't think I would like Corinth either. And he was so discouraged by the lack of success that he wanted to quit. And Jesus visually appeared to him in a dream and told him that great message, I have many people in this city. And he told him to keep going. Christ was the one directing. He was the overlord of the Apostle Paul's message. Christ is the one who provided the supernatural power to enable their miracles. And so Christ, just according to the text itself, he is the main actor of the book of Acts. Bruce Milne writes, Christ is the content and the focus of the message which the apostles proclaim. He is the one in whose name and into union with whom baptism is is performed. Now, when we understand the centrality of Christ to the book of Acts, rather than the centrality of the church or the centrality of the apostles, 
we understand then a vital evangelistic point. Namely, what the church has to offer the world today is the very thing the church had to offer the world then, and that is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a conservative church. We, we have many things that we, many doctrines, many truths that we, we hold very closely. And, and we, we mean business about biblical creation, about a biblical, a, a biblical identity and biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, and so we have strong views about a lot of things. But it should be said, it should be deduced by interaction with us that what these people are about is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, that is what we have to offer. That is what the book of Acts offered. That's what the apostles offered. The centrality of Christ, that unique ministry, Bruce Mills says, which is spelled out so unforgettably in the records of the four Gospels, that is what we have to offer the world. And it is Christ and Christ alone who today as then saves. Evangelism is more than bearing a message about Jesus. It's not less than that. I'm often annoyed when I hear we should preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. Preaching the gospel always requires words. There's a content message. There's a biblical message. It has to be preached. But we do more than convey information. It is Christ himself, the living Lord Jesus, that we bring. We we perform evangelism, the work of the church, in personal servanthood to him who lives and reigns. And we bring those who hear into a personal saving relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief actor in the acts of his church. Moreover, since the church is the body of Christ, spiritually joined to its living Lord, its living head and Lord, the church, we know, is invincible in this age. The book of Acts should give us a greater boldness, an intrepidity, an audacity, because we know that this is an invincible institution that is destined for glory in the age to come because it is the church and body of Christ. What a thing it is. I hope as we study Acts, we will realize what a glorious thing it is to be a part of this church. That we together, we're part of the great church, and the church is, is the body of Christ, and it's, his, it's him we proclaim, not ourselves, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. But what a thing it is to be a Christian to be part of the church, the only institution of this age of the world that will never fail and will prevail into the age of glory where it will shine with the light of the glory of its Lord and Savior. Now, from this perspective, Luke highlights as the most directly relevant stage in Jesus' ministry, his ascension into heaven. He says, uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That is the ascension of the Lord Jesus. And and that is the the locus of his thought. Now, that's interesting because we don't tend to think about the ascension. Now, for very good reason, we think about the, the atoning death of Christ. We can talk about the cross. We can never talk about the cross too much. And we talk about the resurrection of Christ. In large measure, we look forward to the second coming of Christ. All very good. But we are living in an age, and the book of Acts takes place in an age that is assigned, defined by the ascension of the Christ who was born of the virgin, who lived under the law, who died the atoning death that put away our sins, who conquered the grave in his resurrection, and who will, at the end of this age, he will return to bring in the final judgment and the eternal glory. 
It is the ascension that locates our, uh, the, the book of Acts. And Luke, therefore, summarizes the first volume as containing all that he began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now, by the way, here is just one of the ways in which Jesus differs from every other human leader, every other hero, every other person of achievements. I think I mentioned this in one of the scriptures readings recently. Uh, I love biographies. You go to a book, you take me to some used bookstore, which is a wonderful, one of the greatest places on earth is a quality used bookstore. And there's a lot of sections you're going to find me, but you're going to see me just wandering slowly through the biography section. Just love biographies, good biographies. But what a difference there is between the biographies of even the greatest of men, the greatest of women, and this biography of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they all conclude by, by telling us how he died, and then that was it. And maybe there's a chapter about whether, you know, what was his legacy, his lasting impact, his successors, did they betray him, did they faithfully carry on his work, all of that. But the bottom line is this person lived a remarkable life, we're writing a book about him, and then they died. That's the end. Oh, but how different is the biography of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke's two-volume record, which, by the way, is 27% of the New Testament. These are big books. But Luke Acts is 27% of the New Testament. And what a biography it is, because it does not end in death. Oh, he dies. But it continues because he lives and he reigns. He rises from the dead. He ascends into victoriously to the right hand of the Father, where he exercises all power and authority that has been committed to him, as he said in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. And so as Luke sees it, Jesus did not complete his labor and accomplishment in life before, regrettably, he died. Rather, Jesus' work on earth was merely beginning. The gospel is what he began to do. The book of Acts is what he continued to do. Now, this has the greatest implications about our understanding of our own lives and of the age in which we are living. I remember years ago talking to a liberalist seminary professor and he was arguing the irre- typically the irrelevance of the Bible. And, uh, you know, oh, some, the world has changed so much since uh, these things were written. And the correct response, it was my response, I was trained to give it, and I gave it, was what has changed? Nothing has changed. And we, we have the computer. We have the automobile. We've been to the moon. What has changed? In God's redemptive history, we look back on the, what was the last great thing that God has done, and we are living in the age that's defined by it. Is that what Luke talks about? It's the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And so when we read the book of Acts, we are reading a description of the beginning of the age in which we are currently living. Now, if you and I were living in the Old Covenant, if this was in the time of Jeremiah or, or before then, we would look back on First and Second Samuel. And that's the record of those events that took me. Look at the, the Torah. That's what they did, the five books of Moses. And they were living in an age of the world defined by the Exodus and then by the conquest of Canaan and the Davidic kingdom. But you and I, we have the privilege of living. In that era, after the first coming of Christ, before the second coming of Christ, and the things that are said to the disciples about the nature of their world, the nature of their task as the followers of Christ in the world, they are directly relevant to us. Because this ascension, this ascension, together with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, are the things, the great works of God that mark the very age in which we are living 
And they tell us that Jesus is a living Lord, that he reigns with power on high. And yes, we are waiting for Jesus to return. Maranatha, come, O Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. But we are not stuck merely doing our part while he's away. I think that's what happens when we don't think about the ascension. We look to the past. Jesus died. He rose again. Thank you very much. Then he went away. Uh, we look to the future. He's coming back. Oh, it can't happen soon enough. And so many Christians think, between, but now we're pretty much on our own. Oh, the book of Acts says, oh, far from it. It's the continuing acts of the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who has entered into his authority. I, I so often think of and love the statement of Ephesians 1.20. God made him head over all things to the church. Jesus says in the last verse of the Great Commission, surely I am with you always until the end of the age. The last thing we should think is that we're on our own. We just make up our own decisions. We do our best according to our wisdom. Oh, no, no. The book of Acts says that he is reigning and he is saving now. We are living in the midst of the great harvest that began with his own resurrection. We are workers in his harvest field, wielding the scythe of the gospel that we will see preached in the book of Acts. Now, as Luke concludes his opening lines in Acts, he highlights one of the more important works that Christ did in this book that he accomplished after his ascension, namely his choosing, his preparation and training of the apostles who will carry on his work. Look at verses 2 and 3. Having ascended to heaven, actually before ascending to heaven, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now we can organize this statement about what Christ did before he ascended into three stages. First, he gave proofs to his disciples about his resurrection. Second, he called and commissioned the apostles. And then thirdly, he trained them over a 40-day period for the work that they were going to do after he departed. Let's look at those three things. Luke's gospel, the gospel itself, highlights two post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Those are very great passages in Luke 24. The first is the Emmaus Road disciples. Well, that dramatic meeting of Jesus with those doubting disciples, and he, he opens his word, and then were not our hearts burning as he opened the scriptures to us, and then he revealed himself, that's one. And then later, he's in the upper room, presumably that night, where, as you see in other gospels, he appears to the disciples, he lets them touch him, he actually make him some fish, and he eats it to show that he's not a ghost, he's actually risen from the dead. By the way, I think that that second of Luke's accounts gets elongated, The things he tells about are things that happened later as well. And he says here that over a long period of time, he publicly appeared to them. He privately appeared to them as well. And he gave proofs of his resurrection. Now, why was that so important? Why was it so vital to the work of the gospel, to the church, to the book of Acts, that the apostles have proved to them the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why was that so essential? Well, let me give you several reasons why, because of all that is proved by the proof of his resurrection from the dead. First of all, the resurrection proved the deity of Jesus Christ. 
In Romans 1 verse 4, Paul says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a difference. I mentioned earlier the difference between Christ's biography and everybody else's biography is that they die and it's over. Well, why was this different? Because of who he is. He is the very eternal second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is a divine person. And the resurrection proves his claims. Remember how offended, despite his miracles, how offended the chief priests and the Pharisees were. But the resurrection proved his claim to be the Son of God. Moreover, the resurrection proved that he had triumphed over the grave, as 1 Corinthians 15 shows. It showed that all that he taught was true. In Jesus' trial, his teaching was brought forward, and Jesus taught many remarkable things, and they're all proved true. If you, can, if you can say, claiming to be the Son of God, that you are going to die, and then you're going to rise from the grave on the third day, and you do so. By the way, it has only happened once. It is only going to happen once. And that is proof that what you say is true. It is the Word of God. The resurrection validates all the teaching that Jesus gave. Here's an important thing. The resurrection demonstrated that Christ's atoning sacrifice was accepted by the Father so that our sins are forgiven. Imagine if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. He would be like the Emmaus Road disciples. We had hoped he would be the Messiah. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, but how do we know it was? In fact, there's a line in the book of Romans where Paul says he was raised for our justification. And we tend to think of the cross accomplishing our justification. Actually, it's the cross and the, open t- and, and the resurrection. It's the whole work of Christ. But what does he mean when he says he was raised for our justification? He means that there were two parts of an atoning sacrifice. The first was the making of the sacrifice. The second was the presenting by the priest of that sacrifice before God. And Christ was raised from the dead as our high priest, having been the Lamb of God, that he would make the oblation, that he would present the sacrifice. He presented it in heaven. And the resurrection is proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus and his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Well, among other things, finally, the resurrection of Christ is proof that those who have union with him through faith, that they also will experience his resurrection. We experience the resurrection in two phases, a spiritual resurrection that is the new birth. We are brought from death to life to saving faith. And then when he returns... We will have a bodily resurrection as Christ's harvest is completed. He was the first fruit, Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, we are the rest of the harvest guaranteed by him. And so how important it was that the apostles would be eyewitnesses to the resurrection. By doing so, he qualified them to be his apostles. Acts 1, 22 will make that claim. Not to mention he, he transformed their lives. He energized these men who recently had been cowering in fear, and now they have a conquering confidence. Why? Because Jesus was alive. He was risen from the dead. Uh, Luke says his proofs were designed to convince them. And convinced of the resurrection, they were prepared with his power for the daunting work he gave them to do. And so the first thing that Jesus did before ascending was he proved the resurrection by his personal appearances. 
Now, secondly, Luke notes that he chose and gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Through the Holy Spirit reminds us of the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the way the Holy Spirit not only sends the message but causes it to be received. And the apostles were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were his personal authorized delegates sent by him on a mission of proclaiming the good news and establishing the church through the gospel. One part of the apostle is authority. Actually, it comes from a, 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 a Jewish practice and concept called the shaliach. In Hebrew, it has the same meaning, the sent one. It's not merely someone who takes a message, but someone who do so, does so, having received, in our terms, power of attorney. That's what Jesus gave the apostles. He, he called them, he commissioned them, he gave them authority. And he gave an authority to their teaching. He gave them the power of attorney to do the work of his gospel. And he commissioned them with a definite work to do. Now, uh, we're going to see that starting in verses 4 and 5. But when I think of the charge that Jesus gave to the apostles, I, I go back to Luke 24, 46 to 48, in that upper room where their charge to the apostles is clearly detailed. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This tells us the very thing about the church that we see in the book of Acts that the apostles were called to preach. And at the center of the work of the church of Jesus Christ is the preaching, the authoritative proclamation of the good news of Jesus from the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. I like to point out with the Lucan version of the Great Commission that it tells of three things, he says, have to happen for all things to be fulfilled and two of them are already done. The first is the Son of Man must die. He must make that sacrifice. Secondly, he must rise from the dead. My friends, those are completed past actions. But there's one left, and it's happening now. It's the work that defines our lives, the age in which the church lives before Christ, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, should be preached in his name to every nation. I, I like to point out as well that two of those three things Christ does for us without our participation. You and I didn't help him die on the cross. We, he did it for us. But the third one is one he commits to our care. He uses us to be his servants and his agents. The proclamation of the gospel, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, beginning to all nations. My friends, the church is called to preach the good news. Preach the word the apostle Paul will charge. We, like the apostles, are called to minister salvation in the power of the Holy Spirit by the preaching of the word of God, which Christ has given to us and for which he's given the Spirit. And to this end, Paul is going to charge the the apostles to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of his coming is fulfilled, the coming Holy Spirit. We'll look at that starting in verse 4. And so Jesus gives convincing proofs of his resurrection. We see how necessary that was. He chooses sovereignly. They're his apostles. He invests them with his authority. So he chooses them. He charges them. And then he trains them. That's the third thing. He conducts a 40-day training program for the apostles. Verse 3, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I've heard many people say, I'd love to know what was in there. Read the book of Acts. 
Read the apostolic epistles. When you see the way that they use the Old Testament, the prophecies that they use, and the way that Psalm, Isaiah 53 is fulfilled, the way that Psalm 2, Jesus, that Jesus was their theology professor. He opened up the scriptures to them over 40 days, and what a difference it made. You know, these were not the great men of the age. These were not, by and large, educated men. Luke was an educated man. In fact, his Greek is a very high Greek. It's a hard Greek. I, I, I prefer, personally, John, because it's an easier Greek. Why? Because he's not a Greek. He's a fisherman. Uh, but these men whom Jesus trained were men of low training, low status in the world. Calvin says that this is for a reason. For if he had chosen great, knowledgeable, or powerful persons, it could be said that they had much to do with the gospel, that they shared his glory. But what do we see? These are poor people of no account. They are undesirables. But God will use them to preach the gospel everywhere, despite the fact that princes and their officers resisted it with all their might. Jesus is going to train them in the message of the gospel that we read in the book of Acts. David Peterson adds one more insight, that Jesus' teaching of the apostles qualified them in a unique sense to be the authoritative interpreters of the Bible. That's what we mean when we say we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Why the apostles? Why them? What's so great about the apostles? This is what's so great about them. They were charged by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were chosen by him. They were given the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself gave them the message. He sent them into the world to be his apostles, the authoritative bearers of his message. It is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That means if you do not accept the message of the apostles, you are not a Christian. The Christian faith... Uh, the, the church rests on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Uh, some years ago, I, uh, a very memorable event, I've often referenced our local Roman Catholic church, very kindly invited me to give a, an address. They actually gave me 90 minutes. I loved it. Uh, on a Friday night uh, theology conference to explain to them the Protestant doctrine of justification through faith alone. I was giddy with joy. And it did not, they, I thought it went very well. They did not think it went very well. It's kind of a long story. And during the dis- very fruitful discussion afterwards, the, the priest, he's the senior minister of the church in our terms, uh, he was arguing against what I had just said. So I had preached from the book of Romans, Romans chapters 3 through 4. And at one point in the discussion, he says, well, you have the, you have the apostles, we'll take Jesus. You're, you're arguing Paul. And he had to say, I concede that what you're saying is Paul's teaching. But you see, we have Jesus. You take Paul, we'll take Jesus. He, he, you'll take the doctrinal epistles, we'll take the Gospels. But you see, the, 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 this, that it is an unacceptable position. There is no Jesus versus the apostles, as the scholars so often try to divide. They are his apostles. The message that they preach in the book of Acts, that they record and work out in such lucid clarity in the New Testament epistles, is the message of Christ. He is the one who trained them. It was by his spirit that he inspired all that they did. He conveyed it to him. They were his witnesses. Luke says that Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And that's because it was their charge to bring Christ's saving reign into the world through their preaching of his atoning death and glorious resurrection. And those are the pillars on which his kingdom stands. First, Christ's first coming, coming established the basis of his kingdom. 
But his continuing work through the Spirit-inspired apostles inaugurated and began extending the kingdom of God, the saving reign of Jesus Christ through the gospel in the midst of his people and in, in the church. Bruce Milne points out three things at least that are meant by the kingdom of God. The first is the proclamation that God is king. God is the only king. God is the sovereign creator and Lord over all things. And we're going to see that emphasized in the book of Acts. You think of Paul in Acts 17 in the Areopagus. He's going to proclaim that there is one God, not many, and he is king. He is Lord of all. The kingdom of God declares this sovereign creator Lord who is gathering his chosen people through faith in the saving work of his son. Secondly, the the kingdom of God is the reign of God's appointed uh, Messiah who's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies which detailed his saving reign. What the prophets looked forward to was the coming of the true king. That's very relevant after our sermon this morning. The the human kings failed, but there's a true king, and he will not fail, and the prophecies speak of him. He comes, and with him comes the kingdom of God. And then thirdly, Christ's power to conquer his enemies is bound up in the message of the kingdom of God. You think of Jesus saying that he comes into the strong man's house and he binds the strong man and he sets the prisoners free. That is the work of the king. That's the the messianic king of Psalm 2, which is fulfilled, often mentioned in the book of Acts. It's fulfilled in the work of, the continuing work of Christ in our age of the world, I have set my king on Zion's holy hill. I will make the nations your heritage. Psalm 2, verses 6 and 8. They were to proclaim, Bruce Milne puts it, the day of the Messiah's undisputed universal reign, which Christ claimed became a present reality in his ministry and now would start to be extended throughout the world through the preaching of his gospel and the foundations of his church. Well, perhaps one of the most important things for us to realize as we will consider the book of Acts as the continued work of the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people, one of the most important things for us to realize is that he is continuing that work today and he's doing it through us. He says to the apostles, there's a a unique way you and I don't exercise that authority that was given to them. He says, you are my witnesses. In their case, it involves an authority. In our case, it also involves an authority. What is that authority? The apostolic scriptures of the New Testament. The one holy apostolic church, we are the witnesses of Christ. I want to conclude with a a little line, a little event that occurs at the end of J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Sorry if not a Tolkienite. I don't use it that often, but there's one I can't, little episode I can't get out of my mind. And it occurs towards the end of the book, the two little hobbits, Sam and Frodo. They're trying to take the ring of power into Mordor to have it destroyed, and they're in a dark and desperate and dangerous place, and they're going through all kinds of travails, and they have a star glass that was given to Frodo, and they oh how they need that star glass given by Galadriel, the elf princess, and she gives it to him. And at one point, Sam's talking to Frodo about it, and they're in almost despair. And they're clinging on to the light of the star glass. And Sam points out that the light that's within that vial is the light of the Silmaril. Now, this is 
Tolkien lore, his whole story begins three ages earlier when the early elves created three jewels that had the light of the Garden of Eden, basically. And, and it's captured in these jewels, and one of them was in the heavens, and its light was captured in the star glass. And connecting the dots, this is where I'm going, connecting the dots, Samwise turns to Frodo and he says, Mr. Frodo, we're part of that story. The, the, the light that we're relying on in the star glass is the light of the Silmaril that's back in J.R.R. Tolkien's first book. He doesn't put it that way, but that's what's going on. Well, we're continuing the story. And he says, don't the stories ever end? Well, stories do end, but not this one. And my friends, you and I also have, been, have had a jewel that has been committed to us, and it is radiant with the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read the book of Acts and study it together, it is our story. And the work that Jesus continued to do then through them, he is continuing to do now through us. And as we seek to do that work, spreading the gospels, making disciples of all nations, the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he taught us. Oh, how valuable to us as we do that work is a study of the book of Acts. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. This is the record of the laying of the foundation. Now, what do you do in a construction project when the foundation has been laid? You build on it. And that's what we're doing today. Christ is still building his church. We are, together with all the saints alive today, we are the church of this era, this generation, carrying on the building work that rests on the foundation of the apostolic gospel, one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. And my friends, this is the one endeavor of which we are part that will rise up to all eternity. We don't lay another foundation. We build on the doctrine, on the ministry practices, on the priorities, the examples we see in the book of Acts. That's that's the foundation of the life work to which we are collectively committed, and we are now to build upon it. And that work will rise up. It will rise into eternity. It will shine forever with the light of God's presence and with the life that Jesus came to give to everyone who believes. Thank God for the continuing work of the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we do exalt him. And we thank you for this remarkable record. And we pray your blessing on this series. And Father, help us to think differently about ourselves, that we are in the game, as it were. We are part of the story. The redemptive work of your Son is continuing now. And so, yes, Father, inform us, but more than that, draw us to Jesus' feet as his disciples, that we would pour out our lives in the service of this great kingdom work. We pray in his name. Amen.